Hello and welcome back to the Ireland Football Fans Podcast. Uh, I'm Joseph McCarthy of the Irish Abroad website and I'm joined again by Mark Kennedy of Hawkeye Sidekick and Philip Flanagan of the Bottomless Pit of Football. We're going to talk about the national side's last two games of the year against Norway and Malta uh, in the grand tradition of end of year friendlies that nobody remembers Lads, it's uh, it's good to talk to you again. How are you both doing? All good, Joe. Yeah, welcome, listeners. Yeah, all good. How are things, Phil? Yeah, all good, lads. All good. Uh, okay, look, uh, I suppose we dive straight into it with the game against Norway on the 17th. It's a little under a week ago now, but the game itself is fading fast in the memory. Uh, the one thing that I remember most about it was just how cold it was in Aviva Stadium, when the squad was announced, a few eyebrows were raised that there wasn't more in the way of experimentation. And Stephen Kenny made the point that he was preparing the team for the Euro 2024 qualifiers that would start in March uh, when we open against France. But there had been calls for more of the under-21 squad to be brought in. A lot of people were happy to see Will Smallbone had been called up and also that Evan Ferguson um, had been brought into the senior team for the very first time. But when the team was announced, my first reaction to looking at it was you've got Brown, Cullen and Malumbi in midfield. So straight away, there's not a lot of creativity in central midfield. And with Doherty and Odawada out wide, that's where I was expecting to see the creativity, the, the penetration coming from. But Norway, I think, figured out after the first... 10 minutes of positive play from Ireland that had figured out the same thing, that, that our creativity, that our penetration was going to come from the wings. So if they were able to isolate the two wingbacks, Odauda and Doherty, they'd basically stop us from getting into the final third of the pitch. To me, they stopped Odauda by cutting off the supply to him and they stopped Odauda by isolating him out on the left wing. They took the lead from a set piece towards the end of the first half and it, it just felt like it was another goal that was preventable. It wasn't anything creative. It was just their, you know, their center half, Ostegaard, getting a, a flick on at the near post. I don't want to say it was an easy finish, but it, it wasn't difficult for him. And, you know, when you have a back three of Collins, Egan and O'Shea, a good combination of promising youth and, and experience, you think that they'll be able to defend that, but just whatever way the team was set up, whatever way... They had been coached to work on set pieces. Ostergaard almost had a free header. I genuinely felt sorry for Bazunu in goals. You know, he he might have taken the blame for it. Like, Mark, if I can go to you first, I mean, what was your impression of the starting eleven, and how did you think the first half went? I think you shared an awful lot of my sentiments here, Joe, in terms of I would have liked to have seen a bit of experimentation in the side, but was given Stephen Kenny's comments to the media beforehand, he was really treating this Norway game as a NASA test or a preparation test for the French game. So really and truly, he was going to pull out his strongest lineup. So that was the only thing. It was Callum O'Dowda, probably on one of the flanks there. He did have, as he said, some good moments early, but I thought as the game wore on, he was getting more and more exposed. But in terms of the first half, I think preparation issues here, Joe, in terms of how we set up, Again, everything was in front of this Norwegian back four. I think all of the guard and his rest of midfield were very comfortable, very compact. Norway at no stage here were really bothered in terms of our attacking movement. Callum Robinson, Mike Lobafemi, the cohesion just wasn't there. And even, you know, in terms of our best outlet was probably Doherty and Odauda, you know, crosses coming in from either side. Two guys coming in on the opposite post looking to basically get onto stuff, but I suppose you're alluding to the open goal here, John. I just felt we're just being bullied. We're being bullied at the set piece at the moment. You know, in terms of how Strandberg, Ostergaard, it's a, it's a, it's a training spin move from Solbach in Norway. You know, all credit to Strandberg, he basically makes an initial block here, but to me, Egan's beating all ends up even before delivery. He switches off. Ostergaard has still a bit to do on the header, but again, where is the awareness? To me, what's happening in the training ground, preparation-wise and set-piece, is not up to scratch for Ireland here, and it's a, a massive concern here. 
And I thought we deservedly were one 0 down here, uh, Joe. The ten minutes before that, you can see Odegaard pulling strings in midfield, cohesion with Norway there, so chances were being created. And also there was a bit of uncertainty, particularly with Bazuna's distribution out as well, was causing a few nervous moments as well. So all in all, I think Norway full deserved of a one 0 lead at halftime. Well, that was made at the appointments of Anthony Barry and after him, John Eustace, about what they bring in the preparation for set pieces, both from a defensive and attacking point of view. Phil Eustace was appointed and, and quickly left in, in the summer and you know we're still waiting for a replacement. How big of a an impact do you think that had on the two goals that Norway scored against us? Like they both came from set pieces and looking back at the opener like we had nobody on the posts. I mean, that's basic stuff. That's you know schoolboy setups. How big of a loss have the two coaches been to the national side, or do you think that their loss had any direct bearing on the two goals we conceded against Norway? It's hard to know directly. Like the the first one, it's an you know the defender gets a run on Egan. He's totally in no man's land, and it's a total free header. It's the and then the second one, Collins goes to clear, and he makes a balls of it. Like it. It's bread and butter stuff, so like you can go down to, you can talk about coaching all you want. The players don't really look up for it anymore. I don't know. It's it's it, look, it's stagnating. I personally, I think it's the beginning of the end. They just don't seem almost not alert. It's it's just very, it's just very stagnant. You know, it's it's laissez faire. I just want to go back to a point you were making about the squad initially and experimentation. There seems to be this skewed kind of look on Kenny now about how he picks his teams and how he picks his squad. Like, all I was reading before he named the squad was, oh, five players we'd like to see in and six players we'd like to see in and we'd like to see this person get a go and that person a go. A lot of these people are totally oblivious to the fact that Stephen Kenny probably only has about five games to save his job and he's going to pick solid players he knows he can rely on or who at least he thinks he can rely on. And you were never going to get many changes. And when the squad was announced, so Duffy wasn't in the squad and the Derby players weren't in the squad, and everyone thought maybe Knight was injured, but, you know, Kenny, straight away, every, out of the blocks, everybody was, oh, well, Duffy's not playing in the Premier League, and he's been dropped, and that shows you what Stephen Kenny, what kind of man he is. You know, Will Keane's gone, and Conor Hornan's been punished now, he's gone because of his poor performance in the last game. And then, like, a few hours later, it turns out, Duffy was away on personal re- reasons, and Derby weren't releasing any players, because it's not a FIFA-recognised international window. If they were all available, you'd have them all on the team and you'd have a couple of them starting. So it just shows you he's in self-preservation mode now. Like the two big bits of experimentation that I could see were O'Dowda because the, so much of the play was focused on him in the first half. Like he did do okay getting up and down and he is one of our more technical players. And obviously the other one was to see can we partner up Obafemi with someone else besides Parrot with Robinson and that didn't really work either. Just to go back to your initial point, I think Keith Andrews having more of a say in things is having as much of an, a, a poor effect on the team as not having a new coach in, because I, I just don't rate him. We've never rated him on this pod, I don't think, Mark especially, and I totally agree. And I was watching back the highlights earlier on before we came on, and when Adam Brown scores, do you, if you see the reaction of, of Stephen Kenny. Now, I could be reading way too much into this, but he grabs Andrews and he starts hammering him on the chest and he's telling him something like, kind of like, oh, you were right or I told you so or something. To me, this management team seems to be living in a little bubble of their own and they don't realise what's going on around them. I think at that stage of the game, people were looking for a change. That goal came in the, the 68 minute and Norway had already made three changes. Zachariasen, Ryerson and Mailing had all come on before Brown scored and before we'd made one. And one thing actually that struck me around that time that the substitutions were made is that I hadn't seen a single Irish player warming up at that stage. I, I'm not a I'm not a physio, like I'm not a coach. I don't know how long it takes to for a player to warm up, but five minutes is about average. You know, you see players jogging up and down on the touchline doing stretches and one of the criticisms that we've had of Kenny is his inability to change tack during a game. The Norwegian management had obviously recognised something that either they wanted to improve or that something they could exploit and had reacted to that. There was no Ireland players warming up. So it meant that after Norway had made a change, 
we weren't going to be able to do anything about it for at least five minutes. Brown scored in the 69th minute, but it was still another five minutes before the first substitution was made. Brady and Ogbeni came on for uh, Odauda and Obafemi. And it just felt like we were just doing the same thing. Like, you know, plan A wasn't working, so we were just going to try plan A. Odauda, the creative left wing back, went off for the creative left wing back. I, I, okay, with Ogbeni coming on for Obafemi, you were thinking he might introduce some pace but I actually thought the problem with Obafemi was that he was isolated and could have done with more support in midfield the substitution that I think the crowd really didn't understand was Jeff Hendry coming on on the 82nd minute for Malumbi because like what was Hendry going to do with eight minutes to go he wasn't going to score the winner at best it was you know shoring up midfield and okay settling for the draw and you know we can see this three minutes later what was the point of having Will Smallbone on the bench and not playing him in either game. Sorry, sorry, Joe, but people are giving Stephen Kenny way too much credit for even putting Will Smallbone in the squad. It was a token gesture. If Conor Horan was released, Will Smallbone wouldn't have been near that squad. Will Smallbone was brought along and the old line was added out. It's great for him to be in with the group and see how things operate. Look, Will Smallbone is a championship player. Stoke is not a small team. They're a professional setup in England. He's not going to get anything from sitting there for two games when he's just come off the back of a good under-21 performance and he's been playing solid in the second tier of English football. It was a pure token gesture from Kenny and everybody lapped it up. And then everybody asked surprise when he didn't get minutes. I knew he wouldn't get minutes. Of course he wasn't going to get minutes. It was a pure... To- it's one of his, his things. It's, he brings young players through, he puts them in the squad, but he was never going to give them minutes. Another example, Philip. He's yeah. another guy that's been drafted into squads how many times? Dara Lenehan, the same. They're almost talking gestures at this stage, and hopefully, for Will Smallbone's perspective, when <laughs> you consider the Norway, that was really a second string Norway side that was out. Like Nyland, the goalkeeper, was only brought in last minute. Obviously, a certain striker was unavailable, but again, Solback and the coach made sweeping changes here to really give guys a run out. Smallbone should have gotten at least 10-15 minutes here just to acclimatise himself to international football. Smallbone got zero minutes because he's not going to get any minutes in the qualifying campaign. And if Horan was there, Horan would have been the sub. And that's why Hendrick came on. And that is a worry. We've all seen Horan in the last game. We know he's limited. We know he can't run anymore. We know he's just he's not really ever performed in an Irish jersey. And we can see Smallbone. But if Stephen Kenny can't see that, that just shows you he's a manager in, in preservation mode. Because... He's worried now. He's worried his time will be up because this next qualifying campaign isn't a free hit. And no one expects us to qualify, but we're, we expect not to be embarrassed. And I'd say he's worried that that's going to happen. Do you think there's a comparison to be made between bringing Smallbone into the squad and not playing him and what Trapattoni did to Coleman when he was first brought into the squad? Everyone was waiting for, to see this exciting attacking fullback to come on. I think it might actually have been against Norway, where he was named on the bench, ironically enough. And it, people said at the time, well, maybe it's just Trapattoni just being stubborn. I just think it's, it's interesting that it's against Norway, and it's a promising young player that people want to see, given his international debut, um, and in both cases left on the bench by a manager who may be coming to the end of his time in charge. It comes down to trust, basically. It's who he trusts. Like, I'm sure he rates Smallbone. We all rate Smallbone, and I'm sure he knows he can play a bit. But he, do- he probably doesn't trust him. And if he puts him in the squad for the Norway and the Malta games, and he continues to have a great season, say, after Christmas, and say he really catches fire, like he's already doing well, but say he's like, you just can't ignore him anymore. Well, he can say, well, I had him in the squad last November and you know with an eye to bringing him in and if he doesn't he doesn't bring him in then he's just he's covering bases basically that's what he's doing but at the end of the day the players he trusts are the players he he trusts and he plays all the time Jeff Hendrick 83 minutes 82 minutes or 83 minutes comes on at one all he's telling he's saying to Jeff Hendrick right you go on let's hold this lead and you know we've come back against a decent Norway team and we scored a good goal and we've had a go it's not the end of the world. But obviously, if that didn't happen, we can see another soft goal. Just looking at that goal, I mean, there's an element of bad luck to it. But it is it does come from another set piece. Collins goes to clear, and it unfortunately comes straight off the player in front of him. 
But the, the thing about that goal is, just going back to my earlier point, they're not a team that looks on it. They have 20 minutes a game where they're snapping the ball around and they look really on it. But besides that, they don't. It's quite lethargic, really. And we saw that. That just The last 10 minutes of the Norway game just continued into the Malta game. There was no real get-at-them attitude or quick, zippy passes. There's passes and there's players coming back looking for the ball, but it's it's very... Like, the ball is moving all the time, but it's it's quite ponderous. Yeah, it's straight in front of Norway, though, Phil. Like, there was no... If you're a Norway midfielder, central defender here, you'll defend it all day. I mean, they weren't being moved around. There was no variation to play. There wasn't any prepared to make a run from deep here in central midfield. That central midfield, for me, I thought we missed an absolute trick with Connor Coventry. Not to be even caught into the squad. Looking at Josh Cullen there, you know, he was chasing shadows for a good portion of the game. Wouldn't have minded if uh, Connor Coventry would have come on the bench and had some good game minutes there as well. I mean, Stephen Kenny's not doing himself any favours here. Arguments say Josh Cullen goes down with injury at Christmas and is out for an extended period. Where do we leave then in terms of that holding midfielder here? In Cotton and Coventry, we kind of takes an awful lot of boxes there. Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, we, we haven't even mentioned Hodge yet, and I'd love to know the criteria that Kenny seems to think that is needed to, to get 10 minutes in a friendly. I'd like to know what, what you'd have to have done. Do you have to have 200 games at the top level with your club, or what, we know, what is it? And Hodge is another player, you know, who I think he was asked about and said that he's going to be part of the under-21 setup, and that was his, his reason for leaving him out. But he's not going to play football until the end of December because of the break due to the World Cup. I mean, I know he's coming back from a serious injury, but I can't say Wolves would have objected to him getting maybe five or ten minutes of football in, in both games. Looking at the midfield and defence, if you think of the back three and the centre midfield three, O'Shea, Egan, Collins, Brown, Cullen and Malumbi, there's no one there that you can say is going to put their foot in the ball and drive forward. Don't get me wrong, all good players in their own right, but look at who they were up against then. I mean, Odegaard is a phenomenal talent and he was running the show from midfield. Look, we don't have anyone on that level, but surely putting someone with a creative or you know, forward-thinking mindset into that midfield might have shaken it up a bit. There was one short patch to play in the first half where it just Gavin Bazunu was passing to Dara O'Shea and then O'Shea passed it back to Bazunu and then back to O'Shea and back to Bazunu. It was maybe 10 seconds long, but there was about five or six passes, uh, all of which were completed. And it kind of padded the stats a little bit. Uh, you know, if we look at the attempted and completed passes throughout the game, 557 attempted and we completed 485 of them. Like that's 87%. But it did look that Norway were happy for us to have the ball in defence because we weren't going to create anything from there. And when we tried to get forward into midfield, we just got swamped out of it. Up until we equalised, I felt that Norway were sitting back on the lead and sitting in their own half and inviting us onto them a little bit. But the threat that they would always score if we got one was always there, which they did go on to. And that late in the game, there's not a lot you can do about it. There's not a lot, a lot there's, sorry, there's not a lot any manager can do about it. But to respond by bringing on Evan Ferguson for his debut with a minute to go, the 89 minutes when he came on, I actually felt like that was an insult. You're immediately putting him, putting an 18 year old, let's not forget, under pressure by bringing him on in a game where the team is losing. Because when you bring on a striker, you're bringing him on to score and telling an 18-year-old, okay, go out there, get the equaliser. You can't do that to someone yeah, that age. Yeah, but, but if you're Ferguson, you're absolutely loving that. Like, it's, it's all right to say that watching it, but if you're Evan Ferguson and, and there's five minutes to go and the manager's bringing you on because he, he wants you to score a goal, well, you're like, yeah, I'll have a goal. Yeah, this is what I'm here for. I don't think Evan Ferguson would feel like that. You know, okay, maybe he wouldn't, but that's my opinion, and that's where big players come and they take their chances. You know, like like the likes of Evan Ferguson, like we don't know these players personally, but I would imagine he's a cocky bastard. He'd have to be because he's he's playing up front and he's he's a striker and he's he's so young. It's not like the Ronaldo situation where he's going, who do you think you are bringing me on with three minutes to score? I'm never going to be able to score in three minutes, so I'm not coming on. Evan Ferguson is young, he's hungry. I say he was only delighted. Sorry, what I meant was. Ferguson coming on was the wrong substitution to make because the problem wasn't 
up front. The problem was in midfield. There was still no creativity in midfield. Like, I don't think Ferguson touched the ball in the few minutes that he was on the pitch. And if he did, maybe twice. Yeah. Maybe. Bringing him on just felt like a, a sop, really. He was like, well, look, I'm giving this promising young player his debut. To me, you know, if he's not included in the squad in March, he could turn around and say, well, you know, I gave him a run out and... He's a good player. He's a promising player. I like the look of him. He's just not ready for senior football yet, and we're gonna we're happy to to leave him with the under twenty one squad for now. Yeah, it's pretty much the same as the small bone situation. You know, it's just covering all the bases, kind of. Would it be fair to say, guys, he's kind of locked in his squad now? He knows his squad for March. Yeah. That this is just cosmetic surgery, really, from the Stephen Kenny perspective. Well, stand. He knows who's with him. I don't even think he knows who's with him. He just knows who he's going to pick. You know, of the starting 11 against Norway, you could say Bazuna's going to be there, Egan, Collins, Brown, Cullen, Obafemi. That's seven of your starting 11 players, you know, assuming uh, injuries aren't a factor. He's not going to get any chance for experimentation against if before facing France. Yeah. And these two games were, to a certain extent, a free hit. To allow him to do that. I mean, if, if the result against Norway had been the same, but he had played, you know, five or six of the under-21 squads, you know, we've mentioned Coventry, if he had started Smallbone, I think people would have said, you know what, it was an experimental side. He's given these players the chance to prove themselves. It didn't work out, but we've seen how they can play at senior level. People have probably been a little more forgiving of the result. And as it stands... You know, walking out of Aviva Stadium that night, none of the atmosphere that was there from the first few games that we were able to attend in Stephen Kenny's reign, that was all gone. I think, you know, I, I, you know, we mentioned there was booze after the game against Armenia and, sorry, there was a couple of half-hearted, you know, walking into Kenny Wonderland chance, but it, you know, it was 20 seconds later, it was dead. And I, I think he's starting to lose the fans and, you know, reading some of the reaction on the various football forums, the current opinion seems to be that... Oh, he's been slated. Whatever leeway he had is gone. And what we're left with is no better than what was there at the end of the reigns of the last two managers. The substance isn't there going forward. He he talks a good game, but, like, going forward, the substance isn't there. Like, if I was to say, how does Stephen Kenny's team is attack? If I was asking... 90% of the fans, they would say, oh, quick passes, you know. Really, what are we trying to do? Go back to the Scotland game, right? We pump long balls over the heads of the midfielders. We totally bypass the midfielders. And we play Obafemi and Parrot up high, Obafemi over the, on the last shoulder. And they cause fucking havoc. Like, they cause serious problems, right? There's nothing wrong with doing that. You've alluded to the fact that while they were missing their best player, Norway had still had like Odegaard, who has absolutely been on fire this season, and will totally dictate a midfield if given the chance, right? He's played two up front. Why not hit long balls, or at least some sort of variation of long balls, long diagonals? You've brought in Odauda, who's a more technical player, he's a good pass on him. Why not hit those balls, bypass the midfield, mix it up slightly? All big teams do it now. Madrid do it often. Liverpool, you'll often see Trent Alexander-Arnold hit a 70-yard ball up up the wing or onto the last man. City do it. They all do it. Like There's nothing wrong with mixing it up. But he doesn't seem to want to do it or he doesn't seem to realise that he can or maybe he doesn't want to because he, he doesn't like hitting long balls or anything. But there's no variation in the play. Very easy to figure out. And like the goal we got was a great goal, but it came from a breaking ball, like from a kind of a shy cross down the left. But there was no mixing it up. So why not, like, if Obafemi is, is fast, he's strong, he's good in the air, to an extent he's good at battling with his man, why not throw a few long balls up? There was hardly any. There was none. So there's no attacking variation. There's no real... I don't think there's really a plan once we get into the final third. Or there's not a de- definitive plan on how we, we score goals. And if, if there is, he hasn't figured it out yet or he can't get it to the players on the pitch. It almost reminds me of O'Neill coming in and saying, you know, what or someone saying, what do we do for corners? You know, just head the ball away. I very much think it's the case where Stephen Getty says, you know, okay, you're the striker, you score the goal. That's what you do, you score the goal. We're gonna work we're gonna try and get the ball out of our own half and once it gets up to you, you have to score the goal. Because other than that, I, I don't see much substance. Can you can you see much? No, and that's something we did talk about before that 
Stephen Kenny has in his head this ideal of how football should be played, and that's that's not a bad thing. But he doesn't know how to communicate it to the players, and do you, yeah. he doesn't do know. The, do you remember the Underpants Gnomes episode of South Park? Was it? Yeah, stage one, one. Underpants. Next underpants. Phase yeah, two. Yeah. Hmm. Phase three. Question marks. Yeah. Stephen Kenny's is phase one, play nice football. Phase two, hmm. Phase three, goals. But like, what's phase two like? Because I don't know. I don't know. Either. One of the differences between club management and international management is you don't have as much time to work with the players as you do at club level. So you, you don't have the same amount of time to get your ideas across. And the other one is you have a much more limited set of players and there's not a lot you can do to expand that particular pool. You're looking at the starting 11 from the two the two teams um, that face Norway and Malta. He's given debuts to a few of them. A lot of them have been mainstays under him, but he still doesn't know how to get the best out of them. You know, you mentioned that he mightn't have that many games left in charge of the Ireland team, and now he's two less. I, know I said in the last time we talked, Phil, that you've never really been able to say at any point in his reign that he'll still be in charge in 12 months. And, yeah, I don't think he'll be in charge this time next year. N- not at all. N- not a chance. Not a hope. Because he'll have to finish third in the group. And at the moment, I wouldn't like to stick four points off Greece. Definitely not. Home and away. I couldn't see it. And look, I I said to you during the game, I think we were in the, in the WhatsApp group, he's had 30 games. 30. Now, I understand he's had to bring a whole new squad in there. You know, as you've mentioned, an awful lot of them. And try and change the the whole philosophy. But you can get too bogged down in the philosophy as well. There's nothing wrong with mixing it. And playing to players' strengths. If Stephen Kenny had... If he'd have been Paul Stryker up front, he'd still be passing it two yards in front of him and not lumping it up to him. This is the problem. There's not enough variation. And we've mentioned Keith Andrews. I just don't think Keith Andrews has enough in his brain to be able to assess the opposition mid-game and make these calls. Through the last maybe five or six games, there's been loads of obvious things we've all seen. And I know it's easy to sit here and say, well, we saw that and we saw that. You know, We're not managers, we're not there. But some of them have been blatant. Maybe it's just a refusal to change tack, but if you refuse to change tack, you will be fired. Bielsa, for example, wouldn't change at Leeds. They were going out and they were playing this cowboy football every week, running the lads into the ground. I'm sure they begged him, you know, change, change, because if you don't, you will die. And he didn't. He stuck by his guns. And whether it's Stephen Kenny doing the same or a lack of ability to change, what... Either one, he's, he's going to lose his job. But the question now is being asked more broadly. All these players have been brought in. Can a manager besides Stephen Kenny get more out of these players? And I'm sure the answer is yes. Of course it is. Because he hasn't got ownership of the way he tries to play football. Every manager tries to play football like that now, barely like three or four. You know, everybody wants to play good aesthetic, eye-catching football, fast pace, play it on the ground. Like, they all want to do that. So there won't be any shortage of options. I just can't see him getting a tune out of these players before the end of March. And I think the Greece game will probably be one of the nails in his coffin, I think, if we don't go and win convincingly. I think he hasn't evolved, guys, though. I think that Luxembourg game, you know, that run of games and the qualification campaign where for the World Cup, it did end on a rather positive note. I just don't feel... They've evolved from that, and I mean, that's kind of coincided with two departures here in the culture, and we've talked about that at length, but as an international manager, you have to evolve. You have to evolve your game plan, because opposition will be seeing your game tapes. And it's a persona thing, I think, with Stephen Kenny. I think the backroom staff-wise has been well exposed here. I think preparation, even the start of these games, have been very, you know, no real leadership on show you know, an awful lot of ball retention, make the stats look good. But have you really seen a Josh Cullen here or maybe uh, Jason Malumby really turn around with the ball and really run with purpose here in these last two games? Answer unequivocally is no. So I think from that perspective, coaching-wise, video analysis in terms of our set piece, there's an awful lot that needs to improve here. And the fact that we're no further along in terms of replacing John Hughes this year, 
is a major, major worry from my perspective going into a, a French game in March. It's just, you know, we're just sleepwalking our way into a fixture here that France could actually pummel us. The hope was that that first game against Norway was just, okay, it's the first game of the double header. Maybe the players weren't switched on. And then when we went out to face Malta, that they'd have gotten it out of our system. The manager would have recognised whatever mistakes were being made. And it would change in the National Stadium in Malta. But that game was like watching paint dry. It really was. It was soul-destroying. It was two teams who didn't want to be there doing their best to not play football. Malta coming off the back of a, an encouraging enough result in Greece. I know they were, they were leading 2-1 with, with a few minutes to go and conceded a late equaliser. But you know they, they didn't make any attempt to win the game. And neither did we, to be honest. The goal that we did score was an absolute gift from Malta. Robinson basically received a through ball from the, the Maltese midfielder. And look, it was a it was a good finish. He still had to beat the keeper, but he did it. First goal for Ireland in a year. You know, in theory, we ended on a high with our first away win of, of the year, but it just felt so flat. I mean, didn't it, seem like a high though. And no, the fan reaction, as you mentioned, sorry, Joe, the the fan reaction after on the various boards, and even I clicked under like Ortiz match report. You know, Ireland in year on a high, and there was no love for that team. There was no love for it at all. You know, I said that the, the midfield three against Norway didn't have a lot of creativity in them. You know, if you want to argue that replacing Malumbi with McGrath increases the creativity of it, I don't really think so. I think McGrath has played some of his best football behind the front two with a three-man midfield behind him. I was glad to see McLean come in. thought some of the positive play came from him. Look, you know what you're going to get from James McLean. He's been in good form for Wigan as well this season. But it was so hard to watch and justify watching. And I know, you know, the backdrop to it was the first game in the World Cup. And we've seen some great football played in the competition so far. And a friendly is never going to match up to that. But if this is how we play against Malta, when we have to depend on a, a gift from the opposition to score, you know, I fear for how things are going to look in March when we play France. Qatar, of course, stinking up the tournament there on the opening day, one place behind us in the world rankings. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about that with Qatar against Ecuador opening day. You know, they pose us problems in Budapest particularly. But again, it's preparation, backroom management. I mean, you'd say something here, guys. This is the end of June, leading into World Cup qualification. But again, this is kind of a mid-season break. These like Championship Premier League players are off for another three, four weeks. So the motivation. That all comes from management here, that's Stephen Kenny, Keith Andrews, Stephen Rice, Dean Coyley. Like where where's the motivation here? I mean open they're first bored of it. Yeah. They're bored of it and they're probably worried about going out in the next qualifying campaign and they're probably worried about getting the arse ripped out of them. That's probably what it is. They're probably just not feeling it, you know, under this current management team. And the remit of Stephen Kenny was to bring in young players and he was going to play attacking football. He was going to get bums on seats. And it was going to be exciting. And he's done one part. And that's all he's done. He hasn't done the other two yet. Because by the Scotland game, and maybe a couple of others, it hasn't been that exciting. It hasn't been what he's promised. And the, the fact that there's no names being even bandied about or mentioned uh, with anyone coming in is a huge tell. Because nobody wants to touch it. Because no one wants to be out of a job and... Seven months' time. Do you feel that certain players are biding their time here? Yeah, potentially the first three games of this Euro Qualifier Series. You may be out of a job. Are there certain players here that are just biding their time? Producing performance, but not going over and beyond here. Irish players always perform. like You'll never see an Irish player throw a manager under a bus. If the team is lacking belief and the manager can't instill it, or they can't, or they're not hearing what they need to hear, like they're, not, they're all playing League One, Championship, Premier League. They're all playing good standard they're not spoofers like you know they're not playing amateur football they know how the game works and they, they know they'll, they'll have figured out if Stephen Kenny is good enough or not yet collectively they mightn't come out and say it but teams know when the writing is on the wall and that's what it very much looks like you know no one wants it to happen obviously we don't want it to happen we all want them to succeed but I think 
as much as the fans know, if the fans collectively don't think he'll be there next year, and a lot of them don't, well then, look, the players probably know that themselves. Phil, like you said, that you know, one of the challenges that Kenny faced was breaking down the average age of the national team or of the starting eleven. But the starting eleven away to Scotland was the youngest team to start a competitive international since the early eighties. But against Malta, the average age was twenty eight, and I think Callagher was the only player under the age of twenty five in the the starting eleven. So I mean, has he failed in that respect? No, I, I don't think so. I think he he's just, as we mentioned, he's in self-preservation mode. Like, if you to, to just going through, like, going through the, the team itself there, like, to look at the team on paper, the dreaded on paper phrase, but like, okay, Kelleher sound, Collins, Egan, yeah, fine, Coleman's coming in for a game, he's been back in the Everton team, okay, Brown has done well for us on occasion, Cullen is the first name on the team sheet, Doherty, is one of our better players. McLean has done well this season, and you've mentioned you've got McGrath coming back in to try and add some spark. Benny is back in, and Robinson. Like, you're not looking at that team initially going, well, I wish there was a load of younger players in it. Like, to go down through the, the squad that was left on the bench, obviously, Smallbone and Ferguson. Ferguson came on, but they're, they're, those are the two younger players that you would like to have seen involved. But again, it's self-preservation mode. It's, we need a win. It's, we need a confidence boost and win. We need to go back into, into March on the back of a win. And, you know, there's no reason we, we can't get something off France. But it was just the manner of the win that kind of deflated everybody. Maybe not the players, but it doesn't look like it's G'd them up too much. And watching France tonight, geez, I'd be worried. Very worried. How would you compare that performance against Malta against, say, the end of Martin O'Neill's reign or make McCarthy's second time in charge before Kane took over? Well, it's like when any manager comes to the end of a reign where you can see the writing is on the wall. Like with O'Neill, we could see it. You could see it for three or four games. Players know it's just hard. Like, you can noticeably see there's a drop in tempo or there's no, there's just no one busting a lung even. I don't know. It's just, I don't want to say the players look lost, but they're just, to a degree, doing enough. I won't say phoning it in. I say just, just doing enough. Like, Ireland did enough to win that game against Malta the last day. But, like, surely to God you want to go out and you want to hammer them. They're 119th in the world. It's a chance for, for players to get goals, uh, do something memorable. You know, there haven't been that many memorable moments under Kenny. There's been a few, but not that many. But nobody really seemed to want to take the game by the scruff of the neck, you know. And that can come down to the midfield as well, but it just it just didn't happen. I don't know what you think about it, Mark. I mean, you could say Martin O'Neill, Roy Keane, at least they went to a finals anyway. Mm. You know, Mick McCarthy, it's kind of, there was another blend here. I suppose Stephen Kenny, really it's the Euros here. It's, it's the make or break. I mean, the first three games, so by the end of June, he'll know his fate. You know, so there's still time for Stephen Kenny to reflect, gather his thoughts, and his backroom staff to gather their thoughts as well, more importantly. Because that needs to be upped, I think. You know, Stephen Kenny has been left in a very unenviable situation where the, the backroom staff, should it be delivering a little bit more here? Should it be contributing a little bit more? Is there a bit of a, a war of words or schools of thought here at play? Kind of looks to me, it like looks like there, it's not a unified camp within the backroom staff. So he has four months to literally... Get the side together. Hopefully players are playing regularly come Christmas into the new year and really start building a performance. I think the players will be buoyed by that French fixture, given what we're seeing with France in this World Cup so far. The challenge is there. The challenge is daunting. But the players will rise to that. My fear is the games away to Greece and particularly at home to Gibraltar, where we're being asked to force a game. We don't have the nose. We don't have the ability in the final third to hit that killer pass. We're looking for a set piece again, you know, that sort of way. Those two games, particularly in the back end of June, do scare me a little bit. I think the French game, full crowd in Aviva, I think the players will perform. Whether that's good enough for a winner or a draw remains to be seen. But it's definitely that Greece away. We definitely need to get getting something out of that. And Gibraltar, dear God, I think Gibraltar won't have any fears coming to Aviva. I think for Stephen, you know, it's now or never. I think these two friendly performances... 
they haven't really done anything. So so much so that Latvia have been hastily arranged in the Viva with the hope of getting a few goals and getting a bit of confidence in before that French game. I can see that Latvia game going the exact same way as Malta and Norway. It's a friendly, it's a warm-up for both teams ahead of their, their qualifiers uh, for Euro 2024. Latvia are going to be facing Wales in Cardiff uh, ahead of ours, so I think it's it's convenient for them to come to Dublin and train together, then a, a short flight to Wales to play in the Principality Stadium. But I, I think that game is going to be absolute dull as dishwater. No one's going to be wanting to do something stupid to risk losing out on their their starting position in the first qualifier. No one's going to be doing anything to risk getting injured. I, I can see it finishing nil-nil or maybe a one-nil win for Ireland. And it'll have absolutely no bearing on the qualifier that comes a few days later. It's going to be little more than a training session as far as I'm concerned. I, I can see the logic behind it. As in, if you don't play any game before playing France, remember that they have their opener against the Netherlands before they come to Dublin. We'll have a, no game together since November, so four months earlier. And to go, you, you can't really go straight in from that to playing a team like France. I know the selection of opposition was probably limited, given that the first round of qualifiers would be on uh, at that time. And I don't criticise them for selecting Latvia, but like, I really do think that game is going to be played at a snail's pace, and it's it's going to be a little more than a training session. Just looking at the fixtures for the qualifying, like, and as Mark said, it's it's all down to the Greece game, really, because it's all about the optics of how how quickly you're out of the running of qualifying like obviously we don't expect to qualify but if we're out of the running as quickly as we were for the the world cup things will turn nasty pretty quickly and the way the fixtures look you've got uh, gibraltar greece have gibraltar on their opening fixture then they've got france then they've got us then they've got france again like we could be out of it pretty quickly if we don't take something from greece you know, and there's always a hope in in a group with two big teams such as uh, Netherlands and France that if you can sneak something against one of them at home, that they might cancel each other out and hammer everyone else. Like there's always a chance of that, and that would that would have been the optimistic look when the draw was done. Maybe try and get something against France or Netherlands at home. Hope France say just hammer the Netherlands in both games. If we took a point from the Netherlands and we bet Greece twice, Gibraltar twice, well then you're in the mix. But at the moment it just, we, we look so far off it, so I just can't see him. I gave him five games, he must have heard I gave him five games because they've gone and obviously organised another game. Like <laughs> six, so he's calling me out on that one. And look, anyone who's listening to this, we all absolutely want Stephen Kenny to succeed. From minute one to right now, we want him to succeed. But you can't just blindly keep going on about just the process and, oh, he's a great manager for bringing players in. You have to be realistic. We can't be like some of these fan accounts who, like, won't, just won't criticise because it's just not rational thinking. And they'll change, like, the wind if he ever goes and someone else comes in. They'll say, oh, well, he was never up to it, really. But we have to give proper critical analysis of, of the manager. And at the moment, he looks stranded. And it's not going to be a good year next year either. Unfortunately, I hate to say it, but it's not. I think the first half of the fixtures is kind. I know it sounds strange given that our, we're opening against France and then away against Greece. It's a good opener. It's a good yeah. opener. Everybody will be packed. We'll all, you know, we'll all be stupidly optimistic. Yeah, but I think if we don't get hockeyed against France, and look, whatever other criticisms we've had of Stephen Kenny, we haven't been hockeyed. England are the only team to beat us by more than two goals. Yeah, so I mean, if you're looking at it from a historic point of view, we're, hopefully we won't get hockeyed by France. I don't think we're going to win that game. I don't think we're going to draw that game. But if we come out of it with a, a 3-1 or a 2-0 loss, no one's going to condemn Stephen Kenny for that. And then the thing about the Greece game, which comes in June, is that it's followed up by Gibraltar at home. So a bad result in Greece you would hope, would be offset by a home win three days later. Now, if we don't get something, like I know you guys have said that the the Greece game is the big one. I think it's the Gibraltar game. If we don't get something in that game, and if we're coming off the back of a bad performance in Greece, the pressure gets ramped up 
against Gibraltar. And it'll, you know, I think we're going to start hearing some of the same lines that we were hearing before the Andorra game when he was asked if it was a, a must-win game. And he says, well, what's a must-win game? It's a game you must win. It will be the manner of the win, of the victory against Gibraltar, that really sets the tone. Because we could limp by them 1-0 and it's three points. But questions will still remain. If we go to Greece and we take a point, you, you want to be, he'd want to be going out smashing Gibraltar. Goal difference could matter in this group. Mm-hmm. You want to be going out and you want to be hammering them. Like we should be hammering them. It's okay saying, like, you know, I saw Kevin Doyle and Diddy Hamman or someone saying we're minnows. We are minnows. You know, we're not minnow minnows yet. Or we won't be. We're not Gibraltar level. We should still be going out pumping teams like Gibraltar. Fine, Armenia. Azerbaijan, a few of these, maybe we shouldn't be hammering them. That's okay. They all have a decent standard now. But there are certain teams, Andorra, San Marino, Liechtenstein, Malta, these teams. Luxembourg. Luxembourg. Yeah, well, name all the teams that beat us. Why don't you? <laughs> There's no excuse. I don't care. There's no excuse not to be going and hammering these teams and racking up the goals because you miss a trick. Goals and attacking football and, and everyone having fun. It breeds confidence in teams. Like, like look what the, the win against Scotland did. Look how happy everyone was. But, like, we should have been doing that against Luxembourg and all these other sh- shite teams. You know, and the feeling would be a lot better. We could say, well, look, geez, we're scoring against these teams. But if we go out and we, you know, we beat Gibraltar 1-0 or 2-0 and it's very passive like it was against Malta, well, then that's not good enough. It's not good enough. The excuses that Kenny had early in his reign that he was a novice manager at this level, that he was bringing through new players, that COVID happened, that he, you know he wasn't playing in front of a, a home crowd. I think people were willing to accept him because there was flashes of good play in the games, and there genuinely was. But we will be three years into his time in charge by the time we face France. And you know we still haven't established an identity for the team. We keep saying that he wants to get away from the traditional idea of the Ireland team. And, you know, that's an admirable goal, but I still don't know what he's trying to get to. Apart from the Scotland game, I haven't seen what he's tried to get to. We said after the Scotland game that the biggest problem out of Kenny's reign was the inconsistency that we would follow a good performance, you know, in a loss against a good team with a bad performance and an underwhelming result against a bad team. The old saying in football is still true, form is temporary and class is permanent. And looking at Kenny's time in charge, you were to name which is the class or which is the form. You know, that win against Scotland, that was form. And it's the other results, drawing with Azerbaijan, losing to Luxembourg, that's the class. There's very little to disprove that. I think I said it was a year ago, maybe, that I said that his long-term legacy might be giving some of the players that were find the backbone of the team for the next 10 years, their debut, players like Bazunu, like Collins, like Ferguson. But that'll be it. That's what his, his time in charge is going to be remembered for. Because there hasn't been a result of the standard that we've seen, even under under Martin O'Neill. There's been no nights like Germany or Wales or Austria or Italy and Lille. Our chances of qualification were over early into qualifying campaigns. He made a rod for his own back before the Nations League by saying he, th- he thought we could go and, and win the group and then promptly lost his opening two games and we were fighting against relegation. You know, we're going to be doing our end of year review in a couple of weeks' time and it's not going to be pretty. It really won't be. It's not a good time to be a fan of the, the Ireland men's team and especially when the World Cup is on and you remember... Italian 90 and USA 94 and Japan, South Korea. I remember I made the point when Andrew Amadelli made his debut that he was the first player born after Ireland got knocked out of Japan, South Korea to make his debut for the Ireland team. And now Evan Ferguson is, is the same, a player born after June 2002. He was gone his entire life without Ireland playing uh, a World Cup game in his lifetime. At only 18 years of age, he probably doesn't even remember Brian Kerr's time in charge. And he might be better off. We've gone too long without playing in the World Cup. And I think when Kenny was appointed, the expectation was that it would be tough at the beginning. But we would start to see improvement. And we're three years down the road. And I don't know what improvements have been made. 
he's 31 games. Lazio will be 32. And the qualifying for the Euros will take him up to 40. 40 games. So after 40 games, if we're nowhere near qualifying for a tournament, not necessarily from where we were when he took over, but like we're nowhere near the standard to qualify for a tournament. Well then, that's goodbye. Thank you for bringing in all the players you've brought in, but goodbye. And no one can say it wasn't given time. 40 games of football is a lot of games of football. Most managers don't get a season. 40 games is, is a season plus. So this is it. Like Instead of giving five, he's probably got, you know, he's realistically got the last, the next eight, nine. But if we're not any closer, well then, what can you do? You can't give him another 10. You can't give him 50 games. You know, you can't give him an infinite amount of time when the team is, is obviously stagnating. So it's up to him now to, to show us that, well, actually, everything that's happened over the last 30 games happened for a reason, and it's all contributed to this uptake in form we're about to have. And if we have that, great. Okay, brilliant. But if we don't, well, then, goodbye. Joe Phil, like, he's been given adequate time here. He's been given adequate time during even the summer periods here to really blood in new players. You can see kind of a nucleus, even in that Norwegian team, some of the guys he's brought in. But we want these guys to be absolute leaders on the park here. And at times that hasn't happened. So we're kind of more in hope than expectation here that these guys, particularly down the middle of the park, really start delivering with leadership first. For me, anyway. And I suppose from Stephen Kenny's perspective, it's all very brave to go with the beautiful football passing ethos. But again, you have to look at your core strengths and weaknesses within the playing group here. And Again, has a part of our identity been kind of discarded here in terms of maybe a little bit of variations, Phil, as you said at the start of this podcast? Being a little bit direct from time to time. I'll allude to Wales against USA. Things did not work well for Wales and Rob Page, particularly in that first half. They had Dan James up front, went footballing ability-wise, wasn't on it. They were pragmatic. They made changes at half time. Kiefer Moore comes on, a little bit more direct. Hey, presto, they get a Ah, result. They had a plan B. They had a plan B. We don't have a plan B, or if we do, we're not willing to actually make it any much more different from plan A. But, like, you have to be, like, I hate using the word, but you have to be dynamic as a manager with your tactics. It's not a case where your tactic is going to work for every team that you play. You're going to have to mix it up a bit. Like, Norway had Odegaard. I mentioned already, they had Odegaard. Bypass him. Just throw the ball over him. He's gone. He's out of the game. And, you know, have a go at them. There's more than one way to skin a cat. And we just don't seem to have the, not the ability, but the, the management team just don't seem to either have the want or the tactical nous to get us to do that. And this, again, all alludes back to something you brought up before, Mark, his act, the actual in-game management, seeing things before they happen or reacting quickly to stuff that happens. And Joe, you said it yourself, you know, nobody warming up. What are they doing? They've been still shiny monitor there in the pitch. There's about three of them huddled in there. And then you see Stephen Kenny just being a little bit forlorn kind of on the technical area. Mm. Again, to me, there's no cohesion. There's no unified force here in terms of that management team. And if that is the case, it feels that that is translating onto the team performances as of late. Yeah. I would argue even going into November this time last year, guys, we were kind of going into this year on a bit of a high, given the performance that we had against like the Serbia, Portugal, Luxembourg away. God, you imagine that, you know, there was a little bit of variation there. Obene, guys like that were kind of getting on the ball early. They were creating movement up front. And also Luxembourg's midfield, you know, <laughs> that variation as well. Midfield won't press too hard if you're opposition because you're second-guessing yourself. We're becoming very one-dimensional in this calendar year. I know we have the end-of-year review, but we've gone backwards. And we've gone backwards for a reason. And that's because our backroom management, we've lost players. We've, we've lost people, starting with Anthony Barry. And then with John Eustace, who took on the Birmingham City job, we needed more backroom support here for Stephen Kenny particularly. Hasn't happened. And I think we've been seeing the, seeing the full cost of this. Our tactics, you know, really need to have a bit of a shake-up here. Otherwise, as you say, guys, it could be the unenviable position of the FAI chief exec to uh, pull Stephen Kenny in for a chat here uh, come the end of uh, June in Gibraltar, you know. 
like I just say quickly, like just going back to the Norway game because it was the one that kind of mattered because it was the home game. But just go, I mentioned the video already. Just go back and kind of look at the the video of the equaliser and the reaction of the bench yeah. when they scored. Like I'm not saying don't celebrate a goal. I'm not saying that at all. Celebrate the goal, but there was if there's still a bit of wide eyedness about Kenny and Andrews, you know. There's still a bit of, I can't believe we scored a goal against Norway. That's the vibe you get. Not, okay, right, great stuff, go again. There was none of that. It was very much, wow, he's, you know, way kind of thing. And it's just a little bit of, it just looks a bit naive, like, not naive, maybe just a bit, I don't want to say amateurish either because it's not amateurish, but it's just a bit, there's something just a bit off there with it. Do you know, maybe I'm thinking too much into it. Maybe someone would go, you miserable bastard. They have to, you know, they have to celebrate a goal. Absolutely celebrate a goal. But but it's just a bit too wide-eyed for me At the still after all this time. Like he's been a manager now of, of an international side for a very long time. You know, scoring an equaliser at home to Norway isn't the biggest thing in the world. It's, it's you know, it's, an, it's a necessity. It should be... You know, they shouldn't have gone behind in the first place. It should be standard. Of course, we should be getting back into this game. Right, now let's get the second. So, I still think there's a bit of that. Comes across in his interviews as well. God love him, he's not the greatest speaker, but he, he's still interviewing like he's only just got the job. I don't mean to go all in hammering him now or anything, but no. it's, just, it's just the way it comes across to me. I don't. Yeah, it's that confidence for me in front of a camera as well. There's nothing convincing about the words he's saying here, the media latching onto a few words. It's coming back to haunt him then, particularly in post-game uh, performances, and you can see the passive, aggressive feel coming at these interviews. So I don't think he's done himself any favours in terms of maybe the media duties-wise, but I think with Stephen, I think it has to be the collective here, not just the manager. I think his backroom staff have to be more supportive of him, and I just don't get that. I don't get that sense. And if you're a player reporting into international duty, if you have a sense that there is a bit of disharmony between backroom staff members, then I don't think you're going anywhere fast. That's my perception here. It just doesn't feel like everyone's rowing in the same boat at the moment, which is not very like a Republic of Ireland set up in, in recent years, even historically. I, I honestly don't think we could have sold this end of season review anymore. Come for the party, people. Come for the party. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be pretty. If we could end on a positive note, you know, the women's team did play uh, friendly against Morocco, as well as a what was classed as a training game between the two sides behind closed doors. The training game ended to all, but on the occasion of Louise Quinn's hundredth cap, uh, she scored in a four nil win. The women's team obviously on a high after. Qualifying for the World Cup next year in Australia. We're looking forward to watching those games after the men's team have played Greece and Gibraltar in June. Coming after qualification, you might have expected the team to maybe take the, the foot off the gas a little bit. But I think the manner of the win kind of said to me that their year didn't end with the playoff. The push for the World Cup has started already. No one wants to put in, uh, not, I don't want to say a bad performance, but no one wants even to be perceived as putting in a below-par performance. Uh, everyone wants to be on the plane to Australia. And Morocco were, were one of the teams that we discussed that would be worth playing uh, to prepare the team to face Nigeria. And getting a 4 0 win in the game bodes well for when we're facing the, the mighty Eagles in Brisbane next year. If we're going to include the women's team in the year in review in a couple of weeks time and it's a good time to be a fan of the Ireland women's team Absolutely Joe, no it's been an incredible year being to set up their stall this time last year with marquee wins uh, against uh, Finland in Helsinki really kind of really kicked on from there and to be fair World Cup qualification they're in the big dance uh, next year all to play for. Going back to the Morocco international I think the training camp alone, Joe, was massively beneficial for the side and Vera Pau and management. Really getting that extended period together, training, a bit of cohesion here in terms of tactics, skill set, in-play management, and to culminate there with the Moroccan training session and also the, the friendly as well in Spain was great. 4-0 was a bonus here. 
Um, now, granted, Morocco did have one or two uh, uh, ladies uh, out due to African Champions League Cup commitments, but I think to be fair to Ireland, they were much the superior side. So, like as he likes to make him Campbell, get extended minutes, you know, started scoring after two minutes. Katie McCabe, Louise Quinn, what a stalwart for the, the side as well, under cap. And, you know, Caruso as well, uh, which is a key goal for her. 23-person uh, squad for the World Cup. Uh, so every opportunity for the likes of Caruso here uh, will matter. So I think from that perspective, it'll be very interesting here, Joe and Phil, just to see what friendly games Vera Pau and the management do decide to select. Um, you see England there playing the likes of Japan, Norway, very high calibre opposition. So I think from a Republic of Ireland perspective, that level of opposition should be maybe looked at a little bit, maybe in Norway, just to kind of evaluate the squad here a little bit, maybe hopefully in March and also in the summer before they go to Australia. That's a, it's a great point because I think as well they deserve like they deserve a marquee game before they go away because there's a potential to have a huge huge crowd and because there's going to be so much hype about it you know the bandwagon will roll on big time a, a big fixture at home would like surely would draw a massive crowd and would would be a good test for them before they go into the tournament so it, it's hopefully it's something that's been looked at to be honest Phil I think the Aviva now no you know Vera Pound team might disagree but I think a full house in Aviva, just to get that atmosphere of a real fully packed stadium. It'd be amazing. They're going to get into Sydney in an open game of a World Cup with that intensity and atmosphere. It mightn't be a bad idea just experiencing that for the first time, maybe for a few of the girls ahead of a World Cup, just to kind of experience that atmosphere cranked up. I know Tallah Stadium is a fortress and everything else, but even to get familiar with big you know, big, big stadium attendances here because that can go either one or two ways, particularly with players. Um, so mightn't be the worst idea, but again, you probably need to identify an opposition here that's probably decent in terms of quality. Um, so it's very England, interesting. England will be a nice handy one for them. Yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely margins as well, isn't it? Uh, who did they pick here? I mean... We do have, you know, Nigeria, we do have Australia, and we do have Canada here as well for company. So the very good sides here. So I would imagine Vera Powell and management will have done their homework in terms of who they want next. I mean, even if they're going to the USA or somewhere like that for an international friendly, that might be an idea. Given USA and Canada rivalry, their play is very much very similar. That perspective, I mean, do New Zealand come into the equation here a little bit? I don't know. Even the likes of Portugal. I know they have a World Cup playoff coming, but maybe the send-off, it's a Portugal, Portuguese side or a Spanish side that we play before going to the World Cup. Um, it might be uh, one to explore, potentially. Let me just put something to you. So, the men's team are playing Gibraltar on the 19th of June, 2023. That's a month before the women's team play their opener against Australia on the 20th of July. Uh, unfortunately, the 19th is, uh, the 19th of June is a Monday. Like if it was a, a Saturday or a Sunday, then I would say, you know, have a day in the Viva Stadium, the Ireland men's team against Gibraltar, and then the women's team against Team X, whoever the, you know, the, the, the organizer friendly. But there's no reason, I think, why the FAI can't do like a double header over that weekend. You know, so have got the GA cap on. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Have the women's team yeah. play their final friendly, well, you know, if it suits, say on the Saturday before they fly out to Australia. Obviously that, like, however long they want to prepare ahead of that game might, you know, that, maybe that's a factor. Or play the following weekend on the, the 24th is the Saturday and give them a three week lead up to the opener in Australia. I don't know. I think that's a, maybe something that could be investigated. If your pal is listening, I'm, available for any travel planning needs that she might have. That's going to be the highlight of the year, I think, for us from a footballing perspective. The men's qualifying Group B, it's going to be tough. It's going to be a slog. Of the eight games that we're going to play, six of them are not going to be pretty. And the other two are against Gibraltar, which are potential banana skins. I don't want to say whatever happens to the women's team in 
Australia were going to be happy about it, but getting to the World Cup is a massive achievement. And I, I don't think qualification is going to be the highlight of their campaign. I think they're going to get a result in Australia, and I think they're going to, they're going to shake things up a little bit. I don't think they're going to win, like, but I, I don't think the second round is completely out of uh, beyond their capabilities. No, Stone's going to be left unturned here, Joe, from Virapel Management and also Sky Ireland as a sponsor here. They'll provide the funding, whatever is needed, if they need to go down to Australia for two, three weeks before the tournament. Just acclimatise, get used to the time zones, identify maybe a few training match friendlies, that sort of thing. I'm confident that Ireland, Ireland will compete here in this World Cup very well. And really all culminates in that Sydney opening game. If they can get something against Australia, then it's all in for maybe kind of a last 16 kind of do or die effort maybe against Nigeria in the last game here. So um, look, uh, I think it's an awful lot to be looking forward to from an Irish footballing perspective. And you never know in terms of even the men's senior team here. I think certain players really have to come of age. Seeing Kenny has given them these players the platform to bet in as international footballers. They're two, three years into the journey, the majority of these guys, particularly against Norway, quite a few of them have been blooded in by Stephen Kenny. It's France in March next year that these guys have to stand up and deliver. So, look, hopefully there's a bit of confidence there uh, with a full Viva crowd to really go at France uh, for minute one. There's going to be a lot, a lot to look forward to next year and a lot to discuss in a couple of weeks' time when we do our review of 2022, uh, a year in football. I am looking forward to the end of the end of season review. Like it's always good to go back and cast your eye over all the games again because you might have a slightly different take and you get maybe a bigger picture of where we are as a team instead of just looking over the last couple of games and there has been a lot of football over the last few days of the World Cup. The one thing I would say is when I'm watching every game in the World Cup I'm wondering how we get on against both teams and to be honest the only ones we do well against is Qatar. But look, the end of season review will be what it is. We have to be honest with ourselves and we and we have to be critical of what we need to be critical of and positive of what we need to be positive of. That's what it's all about, you know. So we'll, um, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I think this podcast has been fair here, guys. You know, we've given praise where it's needed, particularly players and management and vice versa if things haven't worked out. So, you know, at the end of the year review, there has been a few highs. Now, the highs have been sweet. They've been short-term sweet. But there has been a few lows here that need to be kind of called upon and you sometimes may see a bit of trend emerging here. But again, it's been the story of the backroom staff for me. Uh, and again, I think the end of your review will probably reflect that. Um, but again, I'm looking forward to it because there has been a few highs here, particularly Belgium at the start of the year. I mean, you know, that was a very high quality calibre, competitive friendly in the Aviva. So I think from that perspective, Scotland obviously as well. But uh, look, I think... You know, tonight has been an honest appraisal of where we are, our concerns. You know, we're all genuine Republic of Ireland supporters here at the end of the day. I think we want the best for the team, you know, and also looking endlessly at the World Cup here. Ladies are going to a World Cup in Australia next next year. We'd like the men's senior team to happen. And also the under-21s as well, not forgetting, and the underage setups here. There is talent coming through, so we'll evaluate that in the end of the year review as well. So... It's not going to be all doom and gloom, but I suppose we do have some underlying concerns and anxiety heading into a very tricky group next year for the men's senior team. Uh, I want to thank Mark and Phil for joining me for a slightly longer than planned discussion on uh, two end-of-season friendlies. I think the best description of them that I read was that they were a great advertisement for the Nations League. You can follow me on Twitter at Irish underscore abroad. You can follow Mark at Hawkeye Psychic, and you can follow Phil at Philip Flanagan. We're looking forward to a Christmas break of our own before we record the end of season review in a few weeks. We hope to talk to you then. Take care. Bye.